Well, thank you so much for, for joining us, everyone. Um, I'm Steve Friedland. I'm a urologist at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles, as well as the Durham VA Hospital in Durham, North Carolina. And thank you for joining us for Oncology Data Advisors for Prostate Cancer Awareness uh, Month. I'm super excited that we have a, a great special guest here, uh, Dr. Farnoosh Nikad. Um, Dr. Nikad is a resident in urology at UCSF and uh, went to medical school at UCLA and uh, had the misfortune uh, as a medical student to choose to work with me on some projects. So she's forever cursed from that, but we have some interesting findings that we're excited to share with you today. So welcome to the program here, Farnoosh. Thank you. Thank you so much, Steve, for for having me. Um, Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Um, This is a really special uh, opportunity for me, actually, because Steve is my a uh, phenomenal mentor, despite what he just said. So this is a really special experience. So thank you. Yeah, and no, we're excited to have you. And today we're going to be talking about transgender women uh, with prostate cancer. So something that you don't necessarily think much about, that these are, are people who are assigned male at birth, um, but identify as women and they have prostates and, and are at risk of prostate cancer. And so you've done some really nice work there. But let me kind of take a background and and where did you get interested in this topic from the first place? Yeah, so um, this all really started uh, way back in, well, it feels way back, but in medical school. Um, So initially, you know, one of the things that really drew me to research um, is the potential of really impacting an entire population and not just, um, you know, one patient at a time. And so I had, at that point, it was my fourth year of medical school, I had decided on urology, I had done some prostate cancer research with you, um, and I really wanted to keep that momentum going. And so, you know, I was thinking about where to go next with everything, and I had seen some gender affirmation surgeries help take care of some of the transgender patients uh, while they were hospitalized. And I started thinking, what about transgender patients? And, you know, maybe it's not about the disease, but it's about the population that different diseases affect. And so I started looking into what we already know about transgender patients. um, And it was actually really mind boggling how little primary literature existed on this whole population. Um, So at that point, it also became a really nice opportunity to um, try to decrease some of the disparities that affect transgender patients. You know, they're incredibly marginalized and stigmatized. And so um, it also became about health equity. And so at that point, you know, it was just really exciting. And the question really became, where do we even start? And how do we get this going? Because we're really at the beginning of our understanding of how best to care for transgender patients, specifically um, in urology. And so it's just this really exciting opportunity. So how do you begin? I mean, given the, this lack of information, you know, where do you start? What, what's the questions that you set out on this, this study we're going to talk about to, to ask and, and answer? Yeah, you know, uh, initially we wanted to look at prostate cancer in transgender women. And it, once we started thinking about how to design the study, we encountered this unexpected um, an interesting dilemma of how do you even find transgender patients in the electro- and the electronic medical record? You know, there's no ICD code that's specific to transgender patients, which was also a surprise to us. And when we started looking through what codes even exist, the codes that do exist 
are not specific. They use very confusing and antiquated language that we don't really use anymore. Um, and, you know, we were interested in looking at transgender women specifically since we wanted to look at prostate cancer. And the previous literature that had been done on how to identify transgender patients wasn't specific to transgender women. And so um, what we did was we looked at all the individual codes to try to figure out which ones are sensitive and specific for not just transgender patients, but transgender women specifically. So that was kind of an unexpected first project that we ended up doing, you know, just focusing on how do you even find um, transgender women. Um, and then once we had that established, then we had kind of a clearer roadmap of uh, all the different things we could do from there. So where did you go from there? So now we can identify these women. So what are the questions you ask next? I mean, honestly, the, the sky's the limit with the questions you could ask. But what we wanted to focus on initially was prostate cancer. Um, and, you know, when we started looking at prostate cancer in transgender women, it was, again, mind boggling that there were only very few case reports. It was about 10 case reports and very few um, other primary studies that had been done. Um, and so what we wanted to do was just do a study just to look at prostate cancer diagnosis in transgender women. And so we use the VA, which is a wonderful national database that has huge benefits when looking um, at transgender patients. Um, we were able to look uh, longitudinally. We had national data sets. So it was a really, really nice fit for what we wanted to do. And so we queried the entire VA database looking for patients who had um, one of the codes that we had identified in our prior work that were specific um, and sensitive for transgender women, and also a code for prostate cancer. Um, and then once we had that cohort, uh, it was just, uh, just over 400 patients. Uh, then we did chart review of those patients to really confirm that patients were actually transgender um, and that they had prostate cancer. Um, and then we look through the clinician notes, the medication lists, um, the lab values, you know, pathology reports, uh, everything that we could really get our hands on, even uh, data from uh, community clinicians that had been entered into the system to try to get a really comprehensive view of what does prostate cancer um, look like in this population? You know, what, do, what are the, the, the trends and diagnosis patterns that we're seeing? Um, and a big piece of that was really looking at the gender affirming hormones that they were on uh, in relation uh, to um, prostate cancer diagnosis and meaning in terms of the, the timing of the diagnosis. Um, and so we found that most patients who were on gender affirming hormones were specifically on estrogen. That was the overwhelming majority. So we decided then to stratify patients by estrogen use. Um, so of that cohort, the initial just over 400 patients, um, we had 150 um, that, um, uh, I'm sorry, 155 um, that were confirmed to be transgender with prostate cancer. Um, and then after we stratified them by their estrogen usage, 116 had never used estrogen, 17 had formerly used estrogen, but had stopped prior to prostate cancer diagnosis. And then 22 uh, were actively on estrogen at the time of diagnosis. Um, so that's kind of how we organized the, the study. And um, I'm, I'm happy to jump right into yeah. 
Yeah. So, you know, so you found 155 women, you know, in prior literature, world's literature was 10. So it seems pretty big, but, you know, help us put this in context. I mean, prostate cancer is a pretty common disease. Transgender is, is not the, the typical, it's, it's not, that's not abnormal, but it's, it's a, a small subset of the population. So you start to say 155, is that a lot? Is that little? How, how would that compare to, you know, cisgender men? Yeah, that, that was actually one of the things that we, we want to understand. Um, and so we, because we're using the VA data set, we had a really nice comparison with what's been done in cisgender male veterans. Um, and if you look at what we found uh, in terms of the an estimate of the number of cases per year for transgender women compared to what's been found in cisgender men using the same data, um, or same data set, I should say, um, what we found was ultimately that over the 22-year period we had looked, um, this correlated with about 14 cases of transgender women um, being diagnosed with prostate cancer per year uh, compared to 33 uh, cisgender men. And so it's certainly lower um, than what we uh, would expect if it was going to be you know, an equal comparison. But it wasn't uh, as low as what had been suggested by the prior case reports. In fact, it was much higher um, and, and higher than what we had expected as well. Um, and so, you know, it, it is 60 percent lower, uh, but still not an insignificant number of patients who were affected by this. And especially when you think about, you know, how our society has evolved, there's been tremendous progress in recognizing transgender patients and um, you know, despite the ongoing stigma they face and significant political barriers that exist and fluctuate with time, um, it is projected that the number of transgender patients and transgender women who openly identify as transgender is going to continue to increase. So we think that as patients continue to openly identify as transgender, we'll see more cases of prostate cancer as well. Congratulations on a phenomenal study. You know, as a, as a first author, JAMA paper, as a resident, I mean, it's 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 a great accomplishment, but it's an important contribution to the field, not just for you personally. Well, thank you. Um, it definitely would not be possible without our team, without phenomenal mentorship from you and Matt Cooperberg. Um, so thank you. Um, but, you know, what a, a couple things uh, that I want to highlight, are a couple of really cool findings from that study. And the first one was that, to our surprise, the highest proportion of, of um, great group five disease and the highest PSA density were actually seen in transgender women who were actively on estrogen at diagnosis. So that to us suggested maybe there's a delayed diagnosis um, that these women are experiencing. Um, additionally, you know, we don't really know why we have lower um, lower rates of prostate cancer in transgender women. And we speculate that this may be multifactorial. So I think in terms of next steps, you know, we have to figure out why are we seeing these lower rates uh, of prostate cancer in transgender women? And there's possible explanations such as there's a lack of awareness of, um, you know, that these patients have a prostate and that they should still be considered for PSA screening. Um, both on the part of clinicians and patients. Uh, maybe there are suppressive effects of estrogen that's affecting prostate cancer development. Um, 
and you know, one of the big ones that we thought about is that maybe it's actually that the reference ranges that are being used for um, PSA values are not going to be appropriate for transgender women who are on estrogen, for example. So, you know, when you think about what's normal uh, in terms of PSA values, all of those reference ranges are set based on data that we have from cisgender men. But for a transgender woman who's on estrogen or other forms of gender affirming hormones, we would expect their PSA to be far lower. And so if a clinician who knows to screen a transgender woman for prostate cancer sees a normal PSA, it may not be a red flag to them, but a PSA that's normal may actually be very concerning for a transgender woman who's on estrogen, where you would expect their, their PSA to be far lower um, than what's you know been established in cisgender men. So, for, Can you for just walk us through why being on estrogen would lower your PSA? Can you just walk us through that? for? Yeah. yeah, so we would expect that estrogen, similar to other forms of androgen deprivation, would really push patients towards a, a nearly castrate environment. So we would expect that they would have a PSA value that's very, very, very low. But the reference range is, you know, zero to four, if someone has a PSA value that's maybe like a two or three, that might be normal for someone who's not on hormones, but it, it may actually be very concerning for a transgender woman who is taking estrogen when you take into account the, the castrating effects. And that, that's because you need testosterone to make PSA, right? You know, exactly. exactly. No, so it's very, very interesting. So where do you go given, I mean, you have some interesting findings, these women that are on the hormones seem to be walking the door with worse disease. We're not sure right where PSA to use. And there's a number of directions to go with things. So where are you taking this? You know, it's another one where there's so many different things that need to be done. Um, it's a really exciting opportunity. But I think where we start is we test some of those hypotheses. You know, why do these patients have lower rates and possibly more aggressive disease? Well, maybe it's the PSA values. So what should the PSA values be? Um, and so one of the exciting areas that we're currently working on is trying to understand what are baseline PSA values in transgender women who are on estrogen? Are they different from cisgender men? You know, how different are they? Um, and, you know, how do these PSA values change as a function of the type of gender affirming hormones that someone is on, how long they've been on it, you know, what is the expected PSA velocity for someone who starts hormone therapy? Um, other areas are, you know, do transgender women have lower rates of PSA screening? Is that another reason why, you know, we're seeing these lower rates? So, I think those are the big two pieces uh, in terms of what to work on next. But I think the really critical other piece is to also just understand um, the, the patient experience and to understand what are some of the barriers that transgender women are facing in terms of PSA screening. You know, prostate cancer is traditionally thought of as a male cancer. And so you can only imagine for a transgender woman who is openly identifying as such and is already at risk of being misgendered anytime they go to see a doctor who already faces tremendous stigma in our society. What does it feel like for them to be diagnosed with prostate cancer um, and you know, to, to not necessarily have the support resources that may exist for cisgender men? So I, I think it's um, a combination of understanding how we can best 
care for transgender patients and what that care should look like with direct uh, input from, from transgender patients and the clinicians who really are intimately involved in their care. No, it's, it's a great study and you've clearly thought through the next steps. And I think that's important is we often ask questions, we get answers and then we're kind of stumped, but like any good researcher, you identify questions, answer them, and that just leads to more questions. So I'm excited to see where this all goes. Um, so at the end of the day, for, for our listeners out there, what's the take-home message that they need to be aware of, um, either for the patients out there who are listening, um, but also for the providers who are listening and, and seeing patients? What, what do they need to be aware of? Yeah. I think there's a few key take-home messages. And the most important one is just to make sure everyone is aware that transgender women still remain at risk of prostate cancer even after they've undergone gender affirmation surgery and that they should still be considered for PSA screening. Um, and you know, the other takeaway is that Keeping in mind what we found about the risk of delayed diagnosis in transgender women who are uh, actively on estrogen, it's important to really be cautious in terms of how you interpret PSA values for transgender women who are actively on estrogen. Maybe a normal value is not actually normal and is a reason to have them uh, be referred to a urologist. Um, so I think keeping those two things in mind and hopefully we'll be able to contribute more in the future on what the PSA values specifically should look like. Um, but I think that's a, a good starting point for both clinicians and patients. So, you know, I'm going to push you here a little bit for Anoush. Um, you know, it's nice to say, be cautious. PSAs may not be what you think it is. It, you know, we don't have the data yet, but is there some number you can give out there to say, Hey, at that point, just doesn't smell right. Get it to a urologist, let them figure it out. What is that number? Or, or do we not, we just don't, it's too early to say yet. Well, the one answer is that we really just don't know. But if we were to speculate looking at prior literature, um, I think there's two things. One is if there's a rising PSA, then that's cause for alarm. And the other piece uh, is that it's been suggested in the past using a PSA cutoff of one. Um, but again, that's just purely speculative. We don't know, um, but we hope to answer this question soon. Yeah, so it's cut off of one compared to the traditional four. So, you know, it's speculative, but a lot lower than what we think. A lot lower, a lot lower. Uh, on that note, again, it's it's been a pure pleasure talking to you, Farnoosh. As always, thank you for thank you. taking the time Please to talk to us today. And uh, to our listeners out there, thank you for joining us for this Oncology Data Advisor, um, you know, prostate cancer awareness um, interview and talk and, and hopefully learn something and have a great day. Thanks. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you.